Radhika Jones, editor-in-chief of Vanity Fair. If you enjoy binge-watching the best TV shows and love hearing from the actors and showrunners who make them happen, then subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our Hollywood reporters take you behind the scenes of the year's most anticipated projects, the industry's biggest moves, and the hardest-fought awards races. From The Crown to The Real Housewives, we've got the inside scoop. As a special thank you to our still-watching audience, we're offering 15% off a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair. Visit VanityFair.com today and use promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off a yearly digital subscription to everything you want. Michael Romanoff. He said he was a Romanoff. You know, she's a Romanoff. Checking in for a Romanoff. I'm a Romanoff. Is he tired of this Romanoff shit? Nicholas Romanoff. I could be a Romanoff. He's Romanoff too. Hello and welcome to Still Watching the Romanoffs, an unofficial podcast about the Amazon series, The Romanoffs. I'm Danny Fair senior writer Joanna Robinson. And I'm Danny Fair chief critic Richard Lawson. We have been taking a little break from our let's follow a series from start to end format on the still watching uh, show that Richard and I do. But we are back with a new series, The Romanoffs, um, by Mad Men creator Matthew Weiner. And we will be following this week by week. Uh, it is not a binge show, despite the fact that it's on Amazon. It is being released over the course of seven weeks, eight episodes. This first week, they dropped two episodes. So in this episode right now... We are going to be talking about episode one, The Violet Hour, and episode two, The Royal We. We have an interview with actress Carrie Bechet, who is in The Royal We, and she'll be talking about all of that goodness and the literal cliffhanger ending of that episode. So we'll be spoiling everything up through those first two episodes in this podcast, but nothing about the future of the series, and we will all be enjoying that together week by week. Richard, why did we pick the Romanoffs as our next series? Well, just because it's so sprawling and has this huge cast and like, it's about like, um, well, in some cases, crazy rich people and, you know, we're Vanity Fair. We like to cover crazy rich people and royals and royals. Yeah. So it's really, uh, it's up our alley in that sense. Um, also, if people have listened to past episodes, they know that, um, Anastasia, uh, which uh, is an animated film that you and I wrote and directed 20 something years ago. Right. Uh, so we've had a, a Romanov thing for a long time. Yes, as precocious children, Richard and I wrote and directed and hand drew each cell of uh, the animated film Anastasia starring the voice talents of Meg Ryan and John Cusack. We will be referring to that uh, film throughout <laughs> this podcast, I can guarantee you. So, uh, you know, you might want to rewatch that if you haven't. Because uh, so we are miss- still watching Anastasia. <laughs> You don't want to miss any of our bar talk, uh, the yeah. bat jokes. So, um, yeah. And, and we should maybe recap for the listeners, uh, what happened to the royal family of the Romanovs just so they have, uh, the context. But to be clear, like this isn't a historical, obviously series about the Romanov family. Rather, Matthew Winter has decided to position an anthology series around this concept of each person in every episode claims to be, um, a descendant of the Romanov, the, the Russian royal family, the Romanovs. Um, there is, uh, I'm about to do some very rough and tumble history. Stay with me. But basically, you know, the, the Romanovs were the royal family in Russia. They were, um, overthrown, exiled, executed. But there was a whole bunch of mystery around, um, what happened. Tsar Nicholas was executed and along with his children. And, you know, one of the rumors, if you haven't seen the film that, uh, Richard and I wrote, directed and animated, uh, one common theory is that, uh, or I don't know how common one, one fun theory is that, uh, the princess Anastasia alive or dead, who knows, uh, like escaped, didn't die and, uh, you know, escaped and that, you know, she was somewhere out there in the world. And there were a bunch of, I don't know, people who claimed to be Anastasia. Uh, and, and, but she's not the only Romanov out there in the world. There are also like actual Romanovs who definitely did escape Russia. And so for people out there in the world to claim to be descendants of the Romanov family, that doesn't mean that they're all like, uh, you can trace my line back to Anastasia. There are, you know, cousins and et cetera, et cetera. So, um, right. 
and, and, and the sort of nostalgia, I guess you could call it for the Romanovs, for the, for the czarist era of Russia, um, is, is kind of this thing about this like lost Russia kind of like, because, you know, they were overthrown by the Bolsheviks and communism was implemented. And so people think about the more sort of, uh, you know, romantic European Russia, you know, that the, that the czars, especially, uh, the, the Romanovs like kind of represented. Um, and I think that's, you know, kind of where this show finds it's in to talk about contemporary um, econ- economics and society and all that. Um, so it's, it's an interesting conceit. Right. Make Russia great again. There's also this great, like, um, I think it was Carrie Vichet who talked to me about this and we'll get to her interview at the end of this episode, but this idea of like, if you claim to be a, a long lost Romanov, if you claim to be descended from the Romanovs, it's sort of like claiming this kind of exceptionalism, this sort of like hidden exceptionalism inside of you. It's sort of like, I mean, you can't really tell by looking at me, but I am a descendant from royalty. So, uh, you know, just so you know. And like, what's fun about this show is, yeah, there are a lot of rich people in the show who claim to be Romanovs, but then there's also like, you know, people who work in strip malls who claim to be Romanovs. So it's just sort of like, you know, you know, wherever you are, if you want to claim to be Romanovs and not to spoil anything. I've talked to a bunch of actors from the show. I sort of pre-recorded a bunch of our interviews. Uh, one of the actors I talked to said that her family claims to be a descendant from the Romanovs. So there is a Romanov descendant among, among the cast of the Romanovs, allegedly. So I don't know. It's a fun, I think it's a fun idea for like a really tenuous link. Uh, between this episodes and there's we should say there's not much connecting these episodes of the of the six episodes that i've seen um john slattery is in two of them and that's the only connective tissue really other than uh the romanoff claim so yeah you know. we'll have to kind of work to tease out the more th- sort of thematic connections where that where they may be Right. And, and the last thing we should say is obviously the, you know, if you've already watched the episodes, you know this, the runtime on these episodes is longer than your average bear. Matthew Weiner sort of famously fought AMC when he was being Mad Men to try to get a longer running time for those episodes. He also really wanted, um, to, you know, in an interview with, with, um, you know, our acquaintance Kyle Cannon, who, who works for New York Times, um, uh, you know, Matthew Weiner says, like, a lot of the music that he couldn't get, uh, for Mad Men, like, he was able to get whatever music he wanted for this because there was a huge bidding war over what Matthew Weiner was going to do after Mad Men was over. Uh, Friends of the Pod, uh, David Sims and Griffin Newman host this podcast called, uh, Blank Check, which is about, you know, directors who've had success and then they get like a blank check to do whatever they want in their next project. If I, if there ever has been a TV blank check project, it's this one uh, yeah. where, where Amazon dumped reportedly between 50 and 70 million uh, into Matthew Wonder, essentially making eight films uh, filmed around the world with a really impressive roster of talented actors. So, yeah. And it's funny because I've only seen the first two, so I don't know where things are headed, but like thus far, I mean, he's telling pretty small stories. Like it's not, you know, like, I'm curious, I mean, I guess the star power is sort of the hook, um, but, like, past that, like, this is pretty, like, interior kind of stuff. I mean, granted, there's, you know, an attempted murder in the second episode, but, like, um, beside that, like, you know what I mean? It just feels kind of like, it's, it's scope, or it's scale, rather, is kind of surprising. Yeah, it's funny, I, um, when, when we just had the trailer to go off of, I was comparing it to those anthology films like Paris Jatem, or there was a New York I Love You as well, right? Uh, which was like a collection of short films sort of uh, cobbled together by different directors centered around a city. And the, this strikes me as very similar, obviously, with longer running times for each segment. And yeah, like I having, you know, I don't want to use the word binge because Matthew Wonder definitely did not want anyone to binge this series. It's being released week by week in a like sort of rule breaking <laughs> format for Amazon. But, uh, it felt uh, it felt like I was at like a mini film festival and I watched like six sort of exquisitely cast independent films with, yeah, like really just small stories well acted. So um, it's, it's, it's incredible that Matthew Weiner got away with this. It's <laughs> how I feel yeah. about it, you know? Yeah. So. And, and all the music you mentioned, I mean, you know, he's got so many like, 
Tom Petty cake's cover of I will survive. Like it's just, you know, it's jam packed. It, it's a little maybe on the nose sometimes, but like, I guess if you have the access, why not? You know, I mean, it? honestly, it's interesting that he wanted to do more with the music for Mad Men because I always really loved the music for Mad Men because it felt like the music that was used wasn't super obvious. It was like he had to find the like the B-sides of of things in that era. And I always found that really interesting. I guess, the, you know, the last thing we should talk about is that like before we get into specific episodes is that Mad Men was, um, you know... Uh, Beloved by critics, uh, you know, not as widely seen as a lot of other, uh, prestige dramas, but is nonetheless sort of iconically in the canon. Uh, you know, at least Don Draper is. Um, but it, you know, it was an exploration of sort of, uh, shitty upper class, uh, you know, male, white male privilege was a lot of what that was examining, uh, and the way in which, uh, those petty desires have sort of been repackaged and sold to us, uh, the American consumer. And so, you know, the Romanov, Romanovs also, I think, uh, explores that very much so in these two episodes, this, this, uh, I see two like sort of fractal versions of Don Draper in these first two episodes, uh, that we're about to talk about. What it, like, what, if any fingerprints from Mad Men did you see, uh, here? I, I think, yeah, certainly that sort of, you know, inquiry into the, you know, a crisis of maleness or something, uh, is, is, is there. Um, I think also the sort of shows share a kind of an eye for unexpectedly quirky detail. Like, you know, you think of Mad Men being a funny show, but it could also be a weirdly weird show. Um, and I think there are like traces of that weirdness in this. I mean, the whole premise is weird. Yeah. So, so like there, there's that right there, you know? Um, so I'm just, I'm kind of curious because like writing for people in the 1960s and I guess early seventies, like they got to it at the end of that show, maybe, um, is a very different enterprise than writing contemporarily, you know, like, um, what would a Julian Fellows script set now be? We, we don't know because he doesn't do that as far as I know, you know? Yeah. So it's curious to see. I mean, Matt Weiner's one foray post Mad Men into contemporary writing was, uh, a movie called you are you here i believe they changed the title to from you are here um with amy poehler and jack black and Owen wilson i believe that was a complete flop so so i mean i'm so far so good i think but uh it'll be interesting to see because th- i've seen less than you so i'm eagerly anticipating what's to come yeah i forget what other show it is that we covered where we talked about this and i wish i could remember but we were talking maybe it was uh, American Crime Story Versace, but we were talking about how, um, each episode was sort of like a balance of one genre and another. And I feel like this is exactly what you just said that this show, uh, each episode has comedy and then it has drama, uh, sort of simmering alongside next to each other. And in some episodes, the comedy's ramped up more than the, uh, than others. And so adjusting to tone week by week, I think if you if you watch this week by week, it will be less of a jarring experience than me watching six back to back, which is exactly once again how Matt Weiner did not want his show to be watched. Right. So like you know, week to week, it'll probably be less of a of an interesting transition. But there are some episodes that are like uh like I would call out and out comedies, and then there are some episodes that that sort of blend it a bit more. So. Uh, yeah, let us dive right in to our first episode here, which is called The Violet Hour. And, uh, it stars, um, Marta Keller, Aaron Eckhart, Inez Malab, and Louise Burgoyne. Aaron Eckhart being the most familiar face to American audiences, at least. Um, and this tells a story of, you know, a, a rich, older, bigoted French lady. Um, her, nephew who is um i don't know i go back and forth throughout the episode whether or not i think he's a good guy his definitely not great uh girlfriend uh and then the the woman that they the young woman that they hire to take care of this uh aging woman who they are waiting for her to die so they can get her beautiful apartment. So, um, you know, that's some of the like morbid comedy aspect is you get either from, you know, this older woman's, uh, bigotry 
or, uh, you know, the, the, the morbid nature of her, of her nephew and his terrible girlfriend just waiting for that apartment. Um, you know, and then the story is one that I feel like we've seen a couple times, which is like, uh, this bigoted older woman because she has, uh, you know, a young, uh, Muslim woman working for her she particularly likes because this, this woman who's working for her has, you know, some steel in her spine and, and all this sort of stuff. Uh, comes to, uh, you know, whether or not she changes her mind broadly about her, her certain views on race, uh, certainly changes her mind about this one specific, uh, employee. We find out more about this older woman and maybe some of, you know, the harder things that she's gone through in her life. And, uh, we get this little side romance, um, between the nephew and, uh, the healthcare worker. Yeah. You want, you could call it perhaps, I don't know, feeding Mademoiselle. Daisy, right. Right. You know? Sure. <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah. So I, um, I really liked this. I liked all of the performances a lot. Um, Aaron Eckert's character is sort of a, um, like I said, like a, a, a Don Draper version, as far as I can tell, where like there's the, there's the part where his terrible girlfriend says something like, Oh, what are you going to just like flirt your way out of this? And then he like kind of effectively does. And, and he see, I don't know. It, it's like Don Draper where I was just always like, I can't tell if I'm rooting for you. There are parts of you that are inherently like moral and upstanding and then there are parts of you that are really scummy and I'm just not sure how to feel about you and that is some sometimes a fun conflicted space to live in and Aaron Eckhart like strong and square of jaw is very like a very much John Tam type to me so uh what did, what did you think of all of this yeah I mean I think it was interesting casting because Aaron Eckhart is not the first person I would think of when it was like guy who loves living in Paris, you know, sure, <laughs> you know sure. what I mean? Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. He's more at home, like not on a ranch exactly, but like in America for sure. Right, um, right. so that's interesting. And, you know, I think that, um, I think the romance aspect of this d- doesn't work as well as the Mademoiselle Daisy aspect does. Right. Um, partly there are some optics and that, you know, she's half his age and she is in a position of, he's in a position of power and she's not. And, you know, there, there are things like that that kind of give it an uncomfortable edge. But, um, but I think that like, you know, this is an American guy writing about a very potent and present and current, you know, uh, political and social, uh, conflict in, in France and in Western Europe, uh, largely, uh, about, you know, what to do with, an idea of Frenchness, you know? And so it's kind of this funny irony that this woman is clinging to a Russian, Russian past while also deeply defending a French past as if, you know, while then denying someone else, the sort of opportunity to go from one thing to another thing, even though Hajar, the the woman, the young woman in it was born in Paris, you know? So I think that that political stuff works a lot better than the kind of deus ex machina or deus ex baby, uh, uh, that the Aaron Eckhart stuff kind of brings to it. It's interesting because that, that Deus Ex Baby thing, that, that, like, I don't know, happy ending, I guess. I don't know. It just reminds me of, um, once again, not to make this all about Don Draper, but like, it just reminds me of any given season, not series finale of Mad Men where like Don Draper's found another woman and this time, it's gonna like, I just like, I don't believe in that, this marriage of Hajar and Aaron, like she's way too good for him. And I feel like yeah. she will figure that out and, um, but keep the apartment and like have her baby, her Romanoff baby there and stuff like that. You know, um, I, it just doesn't feel like a happily ever after despite his magnificent beard in the end. But, um, yeah, it's interesting. There are some interesting optics and it's always, um, it's always a question mark for me whether or not this episode or all the episodes are actually interrogating those odd optics that they set forward or if, uh, you know, it's blind to the various, um, things it's setting forward. And my, I want to err on the side of, is interrogating, you know? Here. Yeah. I mean, I think we've talked about it on this podcast again. Now, now I don't remember about what show, but like, I think that it can be, it's tricky because at a certain point, commentary becomes context, you know, like, like, or content, 
Like it's, it, it, you know, a lot of things hide behind the, you know, a sort of ironic distance or something in a way to just do the bad thing. Yeah. You know, like mm-hmm. I'm thinking about mid nineties, a movie that's coming out, uh, I don't know, next month, this month, who, who cares? It's terrible. But like, it's just like Jonah <laughs> Hill getting to call people faggots, you know, for two, an hour yeah. and a half and then be like, but that's what we were like when we were teenagers in 1995 or whatever. And you're like, yeah, but you're still doing it in 2018, yeah. you know? Um, so I think there's a little bit of that and there's it, some of it, you know, relates a bit to Weiner's personal life which we'll get into i think you know in another episode um perhaps next week um something that we're very aware of just by the way listeners um you know so i think that i i think that you're probably on the right side of things joanna in just in kind of erring on the side of you know seeing it as commentary um but like i think i think that that doesn't always let let people off the hook Absolutely. I mean, I think we probably talked about it in terms of Westworld because I think Westworld is one of those shows that like tends to have its cake and then, uh, critique the cake too. You know what I mean? Sort of thing. And so like when you talk about having sex or nudity or there's, there's something about this, uh, <laughs> this is not a reference to what you just said about, uh, anyone's personal life, but there's something about this project that also feels very Woody Allen to me in places. And Woody Allen is a, a creator that I've given up entirely and I, and I'm fine with that. But it was interesting to watch this and feel some, you know, like some of that, like Midnight in Paris sort of vibe of like an American being like, Oh, like Paris. It's just so, uh, you know, romantic. And then a Parisian being like, you're such a tourist. What are you even doing here? So, um, I don't know if it was just Corey Stahl that made me think in the next episode that made me think of Midnight in Paris, but yeah. uh, do you, do you know what I mean? That that like sort of Woody Allen, um, Woody Allen at his best, not Woody Allen at his worst, uh, vibe here. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm sad to hear that you've given up on, on Woody Allen because I think that his next movie in which Tommy Lee Jones, um, starts dating Millie Bobby Brown is going to be great. <laughs> I can't wait. Romance of the century. Uh, yeah, no, I think hopefully a lot of people have given up on Woody Allen. Yeah. But, um, yeah, I know what you mean. There's a little bit of that kind of glossy thing. There's a little bit of, I mean, no, there's a lot of apartment porn, you know, with this grand palais that uh, Anushka lives in uh, by herself while with the maid, you know, during the day um, or the nurse. Um, you know, so that's, yeah, there's an Allen vibe to it, which I think is maybe what I was responding to in terms of it being a little bit, you know, hinky parts. But, um, right. but I think that the stuff between Ajar and Anushka is, is good, even if it's a little on the nose. You know, I think that it, the way that it kind of makes a very blunt s- sort of caricature of a particular sort of older Parisian blue blood racism, um, is kind of instructive in a way and, and actually arrives at something really interesting. I mean, I'm jumping ahead because I don't really think we need to go beat by beat of no. this episode. Yeah. Um, you know, when she finds out that Hajar is pregnant and she's excited and she said, that's all I wanted was for the line to continue. And so she's sort of arriving at this place and it's not perfect. She's not that enlightened, but where she sees that like, the line can continue with other people, you know, like, yeah. so the Romanov line that she seems to, you know, thinks herself part of, but also France can still be France, even if there are different French people in it, you know, going forward or, you know, um, and I think that while maybe a simplistic sort of, um, note to strike or, or an idea to kind of present, like, I think it works really nicely at the end of the episode. Yeah. You know, there's this great, I don't know if it's too on the nose, but there's this great, I think little symbol um in this episode throughout which is the Fabergé egg and little like bejeweled carriage that is at first this cherished item and then she's like it's a fake like the you know when she tells Hajar about like the Nazis coming and living in her apartment and like raping her sister and all of this terrible stuff or when she talks about her husband and she's like oh yeah I loved him and he loved control like you know you get these shades of the Anushka character that you know initially uh you could just write her off as this like terrible bigoted woman like I think the way in which her shades are revealed is is really uh, you know, enjoyable to me. And then you have the terrible girlfriend figure grabbing the egg and walking off with it down the street. Like this, like to her, this is her prize. She still thinks it's real, but she's walking off with this fake 
sort of egg, this fake symbol of fertility, whereas Anushka's like, this is the real, like, this baby is the real future of our, of our family and, and what really matters here. So. Yeah. Uh, and this, this, this fake sort of past, this fake grandeur, this fake nobility, you know, um, and it, she's kind of, you know, she's passing the football off to her. Uh, and she's, she, you know, um, oh, Sophie, you know, walks off with it with looking kind of smug and, you know, with it, maybe, some antiquated notion of Frenchness goes with her. I don't, I don't know if that's sort of the visual point of it, but like, mm-hmm. um, I mean, certainly Mad Men was heavy on sort of visual metaphor and, you know, kind of allegory. So I think we should be looking for that where we can in, in this show. Um, but yeah, you know, like, I, I, like maybe a French person would feel very differently, be they, you know, a white French person or, a, you know, someone whose family is from North Africa or the Middle East, you know, would feel differently, but about, about the kind of politics um, and how they're dealt with in this episode. But I found it to be something that was gentle about a really serious, hard topic without being flippant about it. Right. And not sort of, um, lecturing. Like you never feel lectured to, you just feel sort of like gently taken by the hand. And once again, like, I don't know, I don't know why I find the Aaron Eckhart character so, so fascinating, but like this, um, idea of, you know, a guy who's just like, he's a nice guy, but he'll say stuff like, where are you from? You know what I mean? And then she just sort of like blanches and mm-hmm. then like, is like, I'm from here, you know? And it's just like that very, that very gentle, like, you know, he's like, oh, I'm not a bigot. My, my aunt's a bigot. I'm not a bigot. And then he, you know, he just says certain stuff that you're just like, all right, bud, but also. Yeah. You, you when know, I first and- moved to uh, New York, I, 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 you know, I, and I would like, not used to taking cabs. And so I would make small talk with cab drivers and I would always ask them like, you know, usually they were immigrants and I would ask them where they were from. And then years later, I, I mean, or not too long later, I, I read an interview with ca- like cab drivers around New York city. And they were like, that's the most annoying question. We hate getting that question. And I've sent stuff. So I've, I, I was once an Aaron, Aaron Eckhartian idiot, but hopefully I've gotten better. Uh, many of us were once, Aaron at Cartian in our idiocy. Um, all right. Well, so that's the Violet Hours. Is there anything else you want to say about that particular episode? Um, just that I hope that I love the, the final shot of the, of the, the episode with, you know, this kind of pan through the house. Um, and then the, the little thing with the violet sky and the candle snuffing out, like, you know, we, we get it. She died. like that, but it's a, it's a pretty easy thing to to you know it's a pretty easy sim- symbolism mm-hmm. but um i like the kind of kind of quaint artistry of it and i hope that there's more of that uh in the series going forward yeah we should uh, like uh, before we transition to episode two we should say that um uh, the opening credits have this like really interesting i really like the opening credits and then like you know that's one of those things when you watch a bunch of episodes in a row you can't get like tired of opening credits and skip past them netflix certainly is banking on the fact that you that that is getting in, in the way of your binging and wants to like skip past it for you i never skipped them one one little detail i wish they'd included maybe in the, i mean they weren't shot in a fancy room thinking they were getting their photo taken but but um there was this kind of legend after the murders uh, executions, whatever you, however you want to term them, um, where, uh, apparently they had sewn that the girls had sewn their diamonds. Jewels, it, yeah. And so the bullets bounced off of them. Yeah. And, and I don't know if that's, I mean, it's probably apocryphal, but like, anyway, it's just a little interesting visual detail <laughs> they could have done, but otherwise it's, they're, they are good credits. That's kind of in, um, the third episode that, that whole, that's, we'll talk about it for episode three. Oh. Uh, no spoilers, but. All right, this is episode two. We're going to talk about the royal we. This is probably my second favorite episode of all the episodes that I watched. Uh, it's sort of, it's a, it's a two, two hand or two, like split narrative. We've got Corey Stahl's character, Michael. Carrie Bichet plays his wife, Shelly. Corey Stahl's character, Michael, gets involved in jury duty because he's obsessed with this beautiful woman, Michelle, played by Janet Montgomery. Meanwhile, Shelly goes on this, like, cruise that they were supposed to go on that turns out to be this, like, Romanoff family, uh, you know, event cruise. And, uh, she meets, uh, a guy named Ivan, played by Noah Wiley. And, um, you know, like I said before, we'll have an interview with Kay- the great Carrie Bechet. If you never watched Halt and Catch Fire, she's great on that show. Love this actress. Uh, she 
the only question I'm mad at myself for not asking her was like, what was more attractive to you in this uh, project working with the creator of Mad Men or getting to go on a cruise boat and flirt with Noah Wiley? <laughs> because like, that's, uh-huh. that's not bad work if you can get it. So, um, yeah. So, so we have these two narratives and, and something that I am struck by was struck by watching it is like, um, how much I hated spending time with the Michael character, Corey Stahl's character, despite the fact that I, I love Corey Stahl as a performer, yeah. uh, how much I was frustrated by and did not want to watch this episode because I feel, uh, that part because I feel like I've seen that story a million times and I just don't need to watch like a husband behaving badly, being disgusting. Um, and not just as an, like, just not just in that infidelity is disgusting, but just like he was just being disgusting uh in my view uh and then and then it was just like softened by the fact like i was really afraid once shelly went on the cruise we were not going to see her again yes the fact that the story follows her to the cruise and then it's like really half her story too uh maybe it was like a sigh of relief every time we got to go back to the boat and noah wiley's there looking handsome uh and she deserves so much and she looks beautiful and i just want to like watch them flirt on a boat forever uh so that that balance really helps like it further soured the Michael story, but I was just so relieved every time we got back to Shelly's story because the episode ends with Shelly. I feel like this is, it's at first you think this is shitty Michael's story, but it's actually like Shelly's story of release and freedom. Um, yeah. What, well, that's the thing. Think? It's like, yeah. I think that's where the commentary comes in, you know, about, about the sort of maleness because it starts and you're like, it's kind of this, like, I don't know, John Updike kind of like short story about this guy who's like meets, you know, like meets a woman at jury duty who likes true crime. And, you know, there's kind of this like ant, like this kind of sexual, exploration sort of thing happening where, you know, that's, but, but, you know, with the common man. Um, and so I was like, Oh, like another of these, but then by the end, they're like, they're like, no, that guy's like, that guy sucks. <laughs> like <Yeah>. clearly. <laughs> and this has been about her because, you know, we don't necessarily know what her, uh, what exactly is ailing her in life. But like, and maybe that's the point that we're like, wait, but we should have been looking there because, you know, she, you know, she says at the end, like, I can't believe it took this to f- realize it's over, but it's over, you know? Yeah. Uh, and then it, you know, ends with her smiling in the car. So, um, I think it's an interest, it does an interesting inversion. Um, and it also makes Michelle, the character played by Janet Montgomery, who, uh, Michael sleeps with, um, who's on the jury with him, you know, she kind of in that scene in the car, in the car toward the end is like, what, like, oh, you thought this was like, you know, she's kind of, he's just painted to be the idiot. And I think that, um, that must be in some ways, uh, the show kind of making a commentary on, um, that whole thing. Right. I like, I, I mentioned before that I feel like both in some way, Aaron Eckhart's character in the first one and then the Michael character, uh, in this one are versions of Don Draper. And like, Michael strikes me as someone who like thinks he's a Don Draper, but he's an idiot. Um, but like maybe Don Draper is an idiot too, you know? Um, but there's a scene that I love, uh, that's included in this episode when he comes home from jury duty, like so- somewhat early in the episode and she's at home and she's like helping some guy with his taxes and they're both like stoned. And it's not like she's not having an affair. And I also like that she doesn't have an affair with the Ivan character either. She's not having an affair with this guy, but it's just sort of like, this is a glimpse of what Shelly's life should be where she's just like, She's good at, you know, she's helping someone with their taxes because she's, like, smart and good at that. They're, like, gently stoned and having a great time. And they're, you know, they're going to order pizzas because that sounds delicious and fun. And it's like, this is what Shelly's life should be. And, like, the problem in her life is her terrible, shitty husband. And as soon as she gets out of that, she's going to have a great life. And I'm really excited for her. So, um, yeah. And then, so then it takes this, uh, I don't know why I was struck. I thought of, um agatha christie in the end but you know it takes this like um turn in the end where like he tries to push her off a cliff and then it's this very darkly comedic moment where she's not dead she's 
hanging. She's like, you asshole. You just tried to kill me. <laughs> and he's like, he's gr- like, and I, you know, bless Corey Saul for allowing himself to look so ridiculous because he's like sweating and scrambling and just looks like so oafish and terrible. And he's like, what? No, no, I didn't try to kill you. And she's like, I know exactly what you tried to do. And it's just, I don't know. It's a, it's a, a really great moment. I think so. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it's, 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 uh, it's sinister and funny at the same time, more funny than sinister. Um, although I'm a little bit annoyed at the episode because it, after I watched it, it, I like fell down this like far too long, uh, hole of reading about Scott Peterson. <laughs> like, oh, yeah. And, like, wife killers, you know, and it was just like, ugh, why am I reading this? But I think that's, that's another thing about this episode that feels, um, timely in its way, you know, because it's about true crime culture to some extent. And, uh, you know, I'm just wondering if like, was Matt Weiner at home, you know, listening to serial or, or watching something and, and just was like, I had like, this is so pervasive in people's lives. I have to like include it in something who knows, but like, you know, I think it was interesting how it grappled with that a little bit. Um, and yeah, I don't know the Romanoffiness of it all felt, I didn't quite pick, get it. Did you? Um, I think that's has to do with entitlement, like yeah. Mike Michael's entitlement, but also like sort of the, uh, b- brutality. And then also sort of, you know, I'll let Carrie Boucher say this, like in her own words, but sort of the way in which Shelly almost kind of buys into it a little bit, like being, in, being on that cruise and seeing this like bizarre society, uh, with their bizarre reenactments of certain things. Uh, the whole like, um, you know, the pageantry of it for its good and ill. Um, I don't know. I, I could, I could write a poem about Noah Wiley's face watching like the, I don't know, pantomime, whatever, like bizarre, terrible performance that was happening on the ship and Noah Wiley's face watching it. Also, Noah Wiley is, as this Ivan figure, like I, uh, I just miss Noah Wiley and I like him a lot and I want him to be in more things. And so that's sort of how I felt watching this is sort of like, I don't think Noah Wiley got his fair shake out of ER. Uh, you know, yes, he has the librarian franchise, I guess, uh-huh. but like, I don't know. Do you feel that same way about Dr. John Carter from ER? I don't know. I wasn't allowed to watch ER oh. when, it, when it was first on. So I, I never formed a, a really strong connection. I mean, I, I've been like rooting for Juliana Margulies since then, but like, sure. like, and, um, uh, what's her name? Uh, Gloria Rubin, um, yeah. who was also on it. But, um, yeah, no, I mean, I, I like him. He's cute. Like, um, in his Anderson Coopery way. Um, but yeah, yeah that's, I, that's fair. If you don't have that, like, I watched you as like a, a little pup doctor you know because like the er was so much about you know it was like michael creighton wrote er based on his own experience as like a babe in the woods med student and that's who noah wiley played and so like even though clooney and anthony edwards and eric lasalle and all these other people like you know became some somewhat more of the focus of er like it was about his dr john carter his character and so like if you watch i was you know I was so yeah. young when that show started <laughs> and I, I started rewatching it again recently. Cause when they dropped everything on Hulu, I rewatched like the first couple seasons and I was just like, baby Noah Wiley, where have you been? So, I, you know, he looks, he looks very good, very debonair in a tux. I, I liked it a lot. I just think it's crazy that you had time to watch ER because that was like what 95. We were like deep in Anastasia at that point. I know. Well, listen, I didn't tell you, but I would go home. I was like really ripped up and excited about the project. And so like on my sleepless nights, I would watch <laughs> ER. So I see. I see. <laughs> um, but yeah, in terms of the Anastasia of it, the Romanoff of it, like, okay. So he's Corey Stoll is, um, his character, Michael is in therapy, crying, thinking about Michelle, this woman he's had one, you know, magical night with and you know saying i just i want that like you know i i'd rather die than not have that you know this kind of fantasy this grand romance blah 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 that then led him to a monstrous act of violence and yet he still felt sort of almost in the right for wanting it and doing anything to get it uh it's like that's kind of that's what some nostalgia for royalty is, isn't it? You know, that's like for, for, you know, a, a ruling system that, you know, there's a reason the Bolsheviks revolted, you know, things were not great for not rich people in, in Russia in the, the turn of the century. So, um, yeah, I think maybe it ties in all there, uh, a little bit less, um, on the nose than, than in uh, the Violet Hour, but, um, effectively. 
Well, I think that that enti- I just think of uh, the Michael character as just like just deeply entitled. Just all the things he whines about uh, when he's whining to her at the beginning about like how she sets his like you know just flinging all these unfair accusations at her about like how he works or or his like uh, you know the the weird like haranguing he gives the teen that's come to him for like help getting into college and he's like aim low life is gonna disappoint you you know like all this sort of stuff like he just he he feels like he deserves so much and 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 what that attitude has brought him to is that he can't appreciate the fact that like he's married like that's the thing is like Shelly at home is sort of, you know, Carrie Bichet is a, a beautiful woman. The actress plays Shelly, but like, uh, you know, at home, she's sort of like, whatever, she's wearing sweats. But like when you see her all dolled up for the ball, you're like, you kind of want to be like, stop ogling this woman on your jury. Do your wife is a damn knockout. Like, what mm-hmm. are you even doing? You know? And it's sort of like, it's that, uh, you know, you can't appreciate what you have. You feel like you're entitled to so much more. He feels like he's entitled to, someone who looks like Janet Montgomery, which like, you know, it's not, it's not about like looks and stature or whatever. Corey Stahl is a very handsome man, but it's just about like, whatever that shiny thing is that's just outside of my reach, that's what I deserve. And that will make me feel important. And because I'm royalty, don't you know? Yeah. Yeah. You know. his, she, I mean, in a, in a, she was his Fabergé egg or something. I don't know. Right, right, yeah, right. Or, or she was his like fancy apartment that the that Sophie wants so badly in the Violet Hour. Like, um, I think that is really interesting. A sort of psychological takedown of somebody. I think that we, you know, because we're in we we, we were we spent so many years in anti-hero television, which Matthew Winter helped you know, perpetuate Yeah. Um, that we're used to like finding sympathy with the person in the end. And you really don't in this case, it's, it's really just this like unpacking of like a bad mindset. And then it ends, you know, with some, with the other person who was you know, victim to it leaving and, and on, onto a new life. And I think that's kind of like, it's interesting that there's no redemptive arc at all for Michael. And it's interesting to me, the, the Shelley character, because I feel like that antihero age of television that you talk about, like for so long, there was this problem with the wife character where, uh, you know, whether it was a problem within the writing of the show itself or a problem with the fandom, uh, we've talked about this before, but I think obviously Skylar White on Breaking Bad is the prime example, but like, you know, Betty Draper, I think in the first couple of seasons was just seen as this like monstrous, uh, you know, terrible character. And I think Mad Men eventually reveals like the ways, this, the sympathy that a lot of us found for the Betty Draper character and the way in which you're like, no, Don's the monster. Like he might be nicer on the surface to his kids, but like that's the monster. And I feel like this goes even further. You know what I mean? And I have sympathy mm-hmm. for Don Draper too, but like, you know, that's, that's, this episode goes even further and it's just sort of like, yeah, what if we just don't pretend that this guy gets any redemption? What if we just like, we recognize that his wife, who is great, uh, is not the crazy one. Like Rita on Dexter is not the crazy one to be upset by her husband's behavior or, you know, Winona Unjustified is not the crazy one for being upset by her husband's behavior. But they were like, they were painted as these like killjoys sort of holding their, their cool husbands back from their like crazy life of crime or whatever it was. And, uh, you know, that was a downside of that era of antihero TV, you know, despite the fact that a lot of those shows are shows that I love, like that was just something that they hadn't figured out yet. And that's something that this episode almost overcorrects. Uh, but I don't mind it. We get a a story like this one, which is so so much more satisfying to me to see Shelley drive away. There's also like, you know, I don't know why I got this vibe, but this like interesting Gone Girl vibe. I think it's just because there's like that great shot in David Fincher's um, adaptation of the novel Gone Girl, where like Rosamund Pike is driving, and it, it's sort of. Um, it's different because Amy is obviously like a much darker character. Um, but just a shot of like a woman driving and feeling free from a marriage that was stifling her. Um, yeah. I, for some reason, the last shot of this episode made me think of that. Well, the gone girl thing and, you know, cause that inspired or was inspired by Scott Peterson. So like, you know, it's all, all full circle back to Scott fucking Peterson. There we go. Um, but you know, it also had me thinking about like the, in terms of a narrative, device or whatever 
um, you know, a sort, it's sort of this like faint allusion to the fact that like, yeah, but most women in these stories don't catch the ledge, you know? And like, and so like, you know, like the thing about, um, what is it? Barrier gaze or something like that, that, that whole, Mm -hmm. that whole thing. Um, well, that, but like for a, a woman whose horrible husband, like, you know, gets rid of her for his own, you know, expediency or whatever. Um, it's like, she's like, no, I'm, I, I refuse as a character ch- type, a trope to not, di- not only disappear, like not disappear, but also I'm going to now reclaim ownership of the story. I'm literally going to get behind the wheel of the story yeah. and take it from here, you know? So I feel like maybe on Weiner's part, there's some sort of almost like, He's relink. He's saying, "Okay, like I'm done telling that story. Like, sorry, bye." Yeah, I mean, the, the whole barrier gaze thing is like, um, you know, which is which is a protest of like all the you know gay characters, but particularly like uh gay characters who have just found romantic happiness together and then they have to immediately die for some sort of tragic story twist on a show. Uh, this idea that like yeah, the dead wife is meant to reveal the monstrosity of the husband, right? To mm-hmm. reveal the Scott Petersons of the world. That's why you need to have the dead wife. But, uh, you know, or w- for whatever reason, Christopher Nolan feels the need to kill every single fucking wife uh, in his stories. But like, it, I do like that where you're like, no, guess what? You can show how much a monster that person is and the wife gets to live because she deserves to live because mm-hmm. she did nothing wrong and she's a cool lady who knows how to do taxes and smoke weed. Uh, and so on that note, we are going to talk to Carrie Bechet. I'm Claire Fallon. And I'm Emma Gray. We're culture writers, podcasters, and hosts of the show Love to See It. Every week, we give an unapologetically feminist dissection of reality dating shows, rom-coms, and other romance narratives. We unpack all the weird messages they send us about love, sex, and dating. And we dive into all the details with special guests like actors, authors, and cultural critics. You can find Love to See It wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes drop every Tuesday. Hey, Joanna. How's it going? Good. Thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Of course. I'm happy to. I just want to start off by asking you how much you knew about sort of the Romanoff family legend before you started filming this project. I knew very little. I mean, uh, you know, plot points from the Disney movie Anastasia, maybe. Um, (laughs) But beyond that, I was a real neophyte. And I have to say, the more I learn about it, the crazier it gets. You wouldn't believe this stuff, but that's it's actually true. But it's fun to sort of piece it together as you watch these episodes, because like a little bit of the history or the legend or the myth is sort of in each episode. And you have like a fairly Romanoff heavy episode with all the stuff that happens on, on the cruise that you get to take. Um, what, what, like, were you encouraged to, to study up on the Romanoffs or is it something that you just naturally wanted to dive into yourself? Um, I think it was really just up to me what I, what I wanted to learn about it. You know, the show doesn't actually, in my opinion, it doesn't have that much to do with actual Romanoff. Right. There's something in the fabric of um, that obsession, that sort of um, sense of entitlement or exceptionalism or something um, that really uh, helps define the characters a little bit. Um, but especially for, you know, I play Shelley who married in um, and, uh, her perspective on it is really as an outsider. So I think my not really knowing that much about it was probably pretty helpful, in fact. That's so interesting. And and that's exactly sort of what I wanted to ask you, which was, you know, what you think thematically links these stories sort of through the Romanoff lens. And since you already helpfully answered that for me, then I'm I'm curious. There's this <laughs> part where Shelley is sort of watching some of the pageantry on this cruise ship and I don't know. There's, there's an expression on your face that just seems to be, I don't know, a, a, maybe like a dawning appreciation for something. And I was wondering, you know, in your mind, what Shelley is going through in that moment as she takes in, um, all of this, uh, pageantry, as I said. So I think Shelley's, the way I understand her sort of arc and journey in the episode is she's, I I just love her so much at the beginning. She's so positive and she's really trying to make her marriage work. And uh, it's about the extreme 
events that have to take place in order for you to honestly take an objective look at the situation that you're in, in the, at the relationship that you're in. Um, and it, it's clearly uh, like a logical absurdity that it results in at the very end um, that kind of uh, jolts her into being able to see what her relationship is actually like. Um, but I think one of the important steps along the way of kind of understanding her husband better is when she gets a clearer picture of what the Romanoffs are like. And, um, and I think there's two really important beats in there. You're talking about um, kind of at the beginning when she really starts to fall in love with all the pageantry and the horse on the boat and the parade of little people. Um, I think that all is really truly beguiling for her and really quite magical. And I think she sees and experiences the thing that the Romanoffs feel, which is this like sense of sort of pride and fascination in the history. Um, and then I was just talking to Matt just 10 minutes ago, and he was saying that one of his favorite parts in the episode is then later when we walk back in and the singer is singing Those Were the Days, um, and it's sort of a melancholy moment and it lands on Shelly in a very different way. Um, and I think that's a- another important part of that kind of trajectory, which is she sees what's so magical and beautiful and enticing about the history. And then also the that sort of melancholy sadness of um, nostalgia of, of something that's been lost, of um, yearning for a, a part of you that is no longer there or something. And I think she relates that in a lot of ways to her marriage and her relationship. Yeah, there are these little beats throughout the episode. I know that Matt has talked in other interviews about the moment where Shelley turns off the light and her husband goes, oh, I guess we're going to sleep then, as this like epitome of long-term boiled in resentment. But then there's also this moment towards the end when Shelly is like at home cooking and she's so happy. And then she hears her husband come home and then she's just like, everything about you just sort of falls and she takes a huge, (laughs) huge swig of wine. And she's like, all right, here we go. Um, And, and so I'm just wondering, you know, what, what you tapped into to access, like maybe you and Corey together or you individually to access what it's like to be in one of those like really lived in, uh, resentment filled sort of relationships. You know, I don't think about, um, Shelly and Michael as, a. I don't sort of linger. And when we were working on it, I, I didn't really linger on them being a resentful couple because I think truly where she's at, um, throughout most of the whole episode, she doesn't really know that that's what her, she can't see that that's where her relationship has gotten, you know? So the the way that I sort of played it for the most part is just trying to be really positive and trying to really pull yourself out and try to, you know, shake him out of his sad state, you know, and those to me are a sort of actable, playable things. Um, and, uh, and they keep her kind of buoyant throughout and they keep me rooting for her. Um, I think if they had kind of settled into like a very typical marital discord, um, then I don't know that I would have been as interested in them. Um, so, you know, I don't know. And I think you just take um, information from all the relationships of your life and the relationships that you've seen. And and I think more than that, I really look at the script. I'm a big, uh, like, script analyzer. Um, and Matt gives so many clues about what's in there. You know, we had her, she hides her cigarettes in a little planter box next to the door because Michael hates her smoking. And I think these details are really revelatory about who the characters are. And so I, I tend not to dwell on, um, you know, I don't know, like, the bigger problem between them or something. Cause Shelly doesn't really dwell on it. Yeah. And I, I'm curious what it means to you. I, I've been so fascinated for years about the way in which you talk about Do- Donna, your character on Halt and Catch Fire as a not tip, like in another show, Donna would like just be the wife and in Halt and Catch Fire. She was so much more. And in the end, maybe like, um, more of the focus of the show. And in this episode, it seems like to me in other 
uh, eras of television, we would just have Michael's story and then, um, Shelly would just be either waiting at home or off screen on this cruise and we would just be following him, the antihero, the, the male behaving badly sort of thing. And I'm, I'm curious what you think of this story as a two-hander, um, and, and of, Shelley's own journey in it. Um, I, that's such a great question, and uh, thank you for saying that about *Halt and Catch Fire*. It was such a special uh, ride for me, in particular, um, on that show, and it really kind of undid some trauma about sort of the way women are treated in Hollywood, for the most part. Um, <laughs> except, I have to say, it really set the bar quite high for mm-hmm. what I expect from material going forward. Um, and reading Matt's script, I, it's so funny. I try to describe the, the plot of the episode and I don't find it terribly um, revealing of what the ultimate, what it feels like to watch it. I think it's so funny, the episode. And um, I, I love that we do fully follow both these people on their sort of individual trajectories through the story. Um, and then they sort of meet back up at the end. Um, and there is a way to look at it. You know, we land with Shelley in the final moments of the show. There's this like long one take of her drive away, leaving this man in the, literally in the dust. Um, and we're with her. And to me, when I watch it, I feel like, oh, the story was really about this woman learning uh, to value herself appropriately, maybe, or l- learning that she had to get out of this toxic relationship. Um, and y- you kind of, to me also, the the story kind of comes together in those final moments. Like, you know, I'm, I'm watching and I'm fascinated. And then at the end, <laughs> when he pushes her, it's, you know, it's such an extreme, absurd thing to happen. Um, it really kind of shocks me as a viewer into realizing what this has been about the whole time. You're like, oh, she has, oh, she has to get out. Yeah. Right, exactly. Um, and what, like, do you remember what you thought when you first read the script and you're like, he pushes her off the cliff. Okay. Oh, she doesn't die. She says, what did you just do? Like, what was your reaction to that, that reveal? Oh. Reading the script was, I had very little idea what it would ultimately be like. Um, I remember when I arrived uh, on set for camera tests and stuff, everybody sort of quietly would tell me, you know, you you do know that it's a comedy, right? <laughs> um, and truly, it's really hard to tell when you're just reading it on the page. And the end was completely shocking and felt like it came out of absolutely nowhere. I think when you watch the show, there are visual cues along the way that maybe this is where you're headed. Um, but in the script, it's a really such a shocker. And I was uh, just astounded, flabbergasted, um, didn't had no idea that that's what we were headed towards. Um, and I remember in the table read, realizing exactly uh, how smart Matt is and and how specific the writing is and and really being able to find where it was funny. So I you know I, I loved the script from the get go. I don't know that I totally understood it, um, but if you kind of let Matt take the reins, uh, it's just been a really interesting experience, sort of trying to like. Uh, act out his imaginary vision in his brain, you know? What does it feel like to you to be part of um, a show that is part of a larger whole, but still very much its own thing? Like you've got John Slattery in this episode and he appears in another episode. So it's like kind of the most connective tissue you have. Um, I, I will just say really quickly that I know Matt has talked about repeated gestures, how he has his various characters make the same gestures over and over again as sort of a, a connection. But what other conversations, I guess, did you have around connecting this to the larger picture of the Romanovs? Really very few. Um, Matt really treated us like, you know, I think he can be sort of competitive. And um, I, I think he wanted us to feel like we were the only people he was working with. And so we had his full attention and focus and it really felt much more like filming a movie than an episode of TV. I don't know anything about the other stories. 
Um, I don't know what happens in them. I don't know what kind of genres they are. Um, so I'm, you know, at this point, you know more about the show as a whole than I do. Um, and I have to say, you know, the, the only thing that's disappointing about working this way is I had so much fun on set with this group of people. The crew is so magnificent. They work so hard. They're so talented. He brought a lot of them um, with him from Mad Men. Um, and I, I just wish there was more for me to do. You know, I wish we could come back and do 100 more episodes. All right, so that is it for the first two episodes. Uh, Richard and I did want to address the fact that we know that there is a larger conversation around the Romanoffs and around um, Matthew Weiner as a creator and uh, his workplace environment. I made the executive decision that I feel like that is something that thematically is best explored with episode three. You will see why when you watch it. Uh, but that is why we were tabling that discussion, not because we don't want to talk about it, but we want to talk about it in a way that uh, really supports uh, our discussion of the work itself as well. So uh, you can call us out for that if you want. <laughs> you can email us stillwatchingpod at gmail.com and yell at us if you want. I will read all of those emails, but we will be talking about all of that next week. Richard, is there anything else you want to talk about uh, before we close out? Uh, no, I think that's it. Oh, people should read Joy Press's uh, piece interview with Weiner uh, on VF.com. Great and, in the, and in the magazine, actually, buy the magazine too. Yeah, buy the magazine, read Joy, Joy uh, Press's great uh, profile on like what makes Matthew Weiner a very compelling creator, uh, some of the questions around uh, his process, Mad Men, her own story. It's a really, it's a, a fascinating sort of blend of a bunch of different things. I really like what Joy did with that. Uh, so yes, do read that by the magazine. Richard, until next week, where can people find your work? Uh, on VF.com and they can find me standing at the edge of a cliff yelling at Corey Stoll, Stoll push me daddy. <laughs> <laughs> um, where, where are you going to be? Oh, well, you can also find my work on VF.com. You can find both of us on the uh, War Season Pos- Podcast Little Gold Men. Uh, War Season's really heating up, and this is like a fun place to hear the two of us talk about uh, all the films we're seeing and all the uh, award season gossip. Uh, that we're chattering about, but you can find me personally shrunk down inside a fake bejeweled Fabergé egg <laughs> in a beautiful apartment. And, uh, until next week, we will see you then. That's for Daniel. Romanov. I'm Olga Romanov. Michael Romanov. He said he was a Romanov. You know, she's a Romanov. Checking in for a Romanov. I'm a Romanov. Is he tired of this Romanov shit? Nicholas Romanov. I could be a Romanov. He's a Romanov too. 